Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. This is a trigger warning. This episode at times contains conversations and sensitive material that people may find difficult to listen to. Welcome to Surviving Society Spotlight. I'm Dr. Naj Rashid. I'm a lecturer in Media and Cultural Studies at the University of Sussex. Hi, I'm Dr. Nadia Ali in International Relations, also at the University of Sussex. Hi, my name is Dr. Bakas Tafel, and I'm a senior lecturer in criminology at Lees Beckett University. The reason behind this podcast is that each of us, through our research and activism, have engaged with the war on terror. And we thought that it would be appropriate, given the 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, to meet and to reflect upon our thoughts, our experiences of how the war on terror had such a huge impact on social policy and on our lives, particularly minority communities and Muslim communities. So shall we start with the opening question of where and what were we doing when 9-11 happened? Nadia, do you want to kick off? Yeah, sure. Um, So this was something I think I wrote about um, quite recently. So I think I can't remember exactly how old I was. I was probably 15 or 16, but I remember it. It's a really distinctive memory. Uh, I'm not sure why, but yeah, it's always sticks in my head. I was sitting in a science lesson at school and it was, you know, it was always very rowdy, that particular class. And I just remember the science teacher walking in with the radio Uh, And I always remember his words and he was like, oh, it's something's happened and it's just like something out of a a film. And then he put the radio on and the first words that we all heard were, this is the crash of civilization. And I just remember all of us looking at each other with raised eyebrows thinking, what is this? And And the school that I was at was a was majority kind of British Pakistani. So it was made up of, well, kind of kids from the local area. And we were all, yeah, we all kind of looked at each other and thought, oh, what's this? Um, And I just remember kind of the rest of the lesson, we kind of listened to the radio and then going home and sitting on the bus and thinking and thinking things are about to change. I remember I remember that feeling really strongly. Uh, I'm not sure where it came from. And I think in that sense, actually, that I think it did from the very beginning, it felt like something that was going to mark mark out our lives. And I could see and I remember feeling that really strongly. Yeah, so I was 16 when the Twin Towers attacks occurred and it was my first week of sixth form of college and I, I, I remember um, I was travelling home and I reached our street and a local man um, who was a few years older than me, uh, he called me into his home and you know he was shouting quite excitedly and I think he was saying something to the effect of America has been bombed, America has been bombed. So I went into his house and I could see that his family was gathered around the TV and um, this was only a couple of streets away from my own. And uh, I could see, you know, those images that we are now all familiar with of the Twin Towers on fire. And um, I must admit that I knew that it was a shocking event. I knew that it was a serious event, but I think I was too young to fully comprehend the importance of those events. Um, and yeah, it was a really strange feeling. Um, and I think it was all very new, you know, because I don't think anybody was used to America, you know, the global power being attacked in this way. And I think that was perhaps part of the reason as to why it was so shocking. I mean, I could talk a lot more about the impact that it had in the following years, but I think in the beginning, I was a bit too young to fully comprehend exactly how it would 
change my life, impact my life, and indeed how it would affect and impact the lives of the community that I belong to. Yeah, so when 9-11 happened, I was I was a bit older than you guys. Uh, I was 30 uh, and I was working at Oftel, which is a government body, um, and I was in an open plan office. And I remember sitting back in my seat and I could see open plan office. I could see loads of my colleagues' screens. And I remember seeing the, the footage of the attack on, on someone's screen. And I thought, it's unlike, unlike this colleague, because he was quite kind of hardworking to be watching sort of film trailers, you know, in sort of middle of the afternoon. And it, you know, I remember seeing the images before I actually knew what had happened. And then of course, you know, sort of word spread in the office and my dad rang me, you know, he was kind of scared about what had happened. But in the next few days I was meant to be traveling. I was flying to Istanbul and I remember him saying, you know, I don't think you should go, I don't think you should go. I think I went on the 14th of September and just that the airport was really quiet but also that it was all the Muslims who were being asked loads of questions at security and you know I specifically remember a hijab wearing woman being questioned quite intrusively um so I mean that kind of immediate memories of the attack for me because I mean you said like longer term uh, repercussions I mean in the immediate period after the attack like how long did it take you to sort of think about what the actual consequences were going to be i think that one of the consequences i mean so in the 2000s and i think in the mid 2000s where we see the beginnings of social media and in particular facebook i think that one of the impacts for me personally was just seeing an increased rise of racism towards muslims and one of the kind of personal things for me or one of the personal anecdotes that i have is just seeing how in the early days of social media, how it really emboldened people to be more racist or to be racist towards Muslims. Um, and of course, um, you know, as a number of academics have commented, you know, uh, I think that the 9-11 attacks and also a number of other serious events in the UK um, marked the period where British Asians became British Muslims in the eyes of many. And I think that is something that is that we perhaps might come back to uh, in this conversation. And I think that one of the difficult things is seeing how a lot of this racism came from people that I might have gone to school with, people that I might have known. You know, this was an explicitly anti-Muslim racism, you know, so this is where you see the rise of slurs, um, you know, such as terrorists and bin Laden. You know, these are ones that were very familiar, particularly if you were young, particularly if you were in school, I think, at the time. And I think actually that this period would have been more difficult for those that were younger than me. I was quite young, but I think to be in high school at the time and to be Muslim, particularly if you were in a school where you didn't have many of your immediate peers from Muslim backgrounds, I think that would have been particularly difficult. And I know from many, you know, friends and peers and family members, you know, that this was a period, you know, where slurs could kind of be uttered quite openly. And also in some cases, you know, these could be worse than slurs. And of course, we know that there were a number of attacks as well on Muslims. I saw the impact and I think that I saw it most clearly in the form of those kind of incidents of racism, but then also how a culture of anti-Muslim racism was starting to develop. I think what was really interesting from this period, if I'm recalling it correctly, I think I am, that we had a lot of conversations as a family. Um, so not just kind of immediate nuclear family, but as a wider, extended, multi-generational kind of household and community about, about what had happened. And I just remember 
actually, if we link this to um, seven seven, the idea, particularly from my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation, who are still um, my grandparents who were still alive then, saying that um, <laughs> I just remember this really strongly, saying that we had pushed them too far and one day they would send us home. And I thought this was so. Uh, it seemed to me completely inconceivable. And I remember listening to them speaking in these ways um, and particularly when they were lecturing kind of all of us who were a bit younger and kind of worked up about what was going on uh, that this was their view and we and I remember all of us expressing in different ways um, well they couldn't possibly do that because we're British and I think that really sticks with me as well given the kind of context of conversations we've been having around Shemima Begum um, and the countless others who've had their uh, citizenship um, removed from them by the Home Secretary because actually I guess our parents knew <laughs> and our grandparents knew things that we didn't really um, which was that you couldn't be secure in being present in Britain in this way and that was something and I think we'd grown up with the idea although I you know I grew up being called and you know all this racist stuff like you know we all grew up with that but I think I never questioned the idea that um, this was home would probably be too strong a word but that we had or that I had we all had a right to be here uh, and I think that this was one of the kind of abiding legacies of the war on terror a reminder that belonging is never unconditional and that, that and that it can be called into question and it has been called into question through the war on terror and I think those family conversations that we had were really they often come back to me and I wonder you know knowing the things that I know now and having researched and talked about the things that we all have in our work, you know, in different ways, what kind of conversations we could, you know, we could have with our families now about things like that. I think the, the question of generation is really interesting. You know, Wakas, what you were saying earlier about younger people growing up at school and how they would have been really impacted by that. I mean, I guess for me, I feel like, you know, this kind of identification of Muslims as something separate started a lot earlier and I was aware of it happening say with the the Rushdie affair in the late 80s the kind of questions you know of loyalty around the Gulf Wars when they were happening um, and then also within like so speaking as a British South Asian Muslim the kind of fractures within the British Asian community and then how 9-11 and then later 7-7 how, how that kind of you know stuck the nail in the um, put the nail in the coffin of you know, that type of um, solidarity. So there were already conversations, I think, about anti-Muslim racism or Islamophobia. So, you know, Runnymede had done their report in, I think it was 96, 97, the original one. And you'd started to kind of see conversations about British Pakistani and British Bangladeshi populations as kind of not fulfilling the sort of Asian immigrant dream. So that was kind of already happening. And then if we think about 2001, think about earlier that year, you know, the uprisings, disturbances in the in the former mill towns is kind of marking out of Muslims, South Asian Muslims at that point as being kind of problematic was kind of already there. But yeah, I mean, obviously, 9-11 was incredibly, you know, had an incredibly profound impact. But I think some of that 
process was was already happening and and going back to what you were saying Nadia about racist abuse yeah of course that was always there but you know that fracturing between different um South Asian communities in Britain was really um consolidated I guess by by 9-11 I, I I want to mention this an anecdote 20 years ago when there were conversations about you know the the start of the invasion of Afghanistan and a friend and I, a British Indian Sikh friend, were in a in a bar, and this white guy came and asked us, you know, what what do your lot think about this? You know, and the irony of that was that we had been arguing. Um, I'd been saying, well, you know, it's unbelievable, outrageous, and he was like taking the pragmatic line that what else would you expect? But you know that anecdote I think encapsulates something also that sort of changed um, at that time in terms of kind of relationships uh, around race and racialization. Yeah I think another kind of trend from this time when we think about Islamophobic attacks that obviously it's not just um, Muslims I mean the experiences of that you couldn't just say are Muslims were being kind of were the only victims the victims tended to be anyone who was racialized as Muslim so a lot of the early attacks for example in the US were uh, targeting Sikhs because there was no understanding of the distinctions between uh, and among communities but I think yeah you're completely right about that about the idea of of the good immigrant and that kind of reconfiguration of within minority communities about who who gets to be the good immigrant and, and who who are the bad ones and obviously I think for me there was and I guess for all of us in different ways, there's those legacies of partition as well, right, where I definitely grew up in a household where there was already an understanding of, well, this is what it means to be a Muslim, and this is what it means to be a Sikh, or this is what it means to be a, a, a Hindu. And I think then a lot of the a lot of the conversations after that about where we belong and solidarity and things like that were completely even further out of the question than they had been prior to that, I think. But yeah, I would... I would really agree with what you've just said, Nash. It's really interesting to think about the impact that 9-11 had on me, uh, because I think what has a much more significant impact on me, and I know it's linked to our wider conversation here, are the riots or the uprisings that took place in Northern England back in 2001, which is, of course, just a few months before the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York. And um, they had a much more profound impact on me personally, but they were also very much linked to the fallout of the 9-11 attacks. I mean, so I know that many of the listeners would be familiar with what happened, which is where due to far-right provocation, a number of Asian communities uh, fought pitch battles with police in towns including Oldham, Burnley and Bradford. And it's well established now that the Asian offenders, um, the Asian participants uh, in these uprisings um, were dealt with much more harshly than the far-right agitators. Um, they were given much longer sentences and had a much more profound impact on social policy particularly as it came to those concepts that developed, such as integration and community cohesion, you know, which have been shoved down the throats of British Asian communities and particularly British Muslim communities over the past 20 years. And, as, and I talk about the impact that's had because it's been so significant in that I was actually in sixth form in Oldham at the time. I was studying my A-levels there and I remember one week of the riots, there were about six police vans outside the sixth form every single day, even though there was nothing happening at the college. And... I also had a part-time job at the time, which was nearby. I worked with a number of young Asian men. A few of them were convicted and sent to prison for over five years. And, you know, so that was a profound impact on me where I could see how local events had led to a number of lives being ruined. And, you know, in these cases, people were given, you know, these 
were not even unique cases. People were given five-year sentences just for throwing stones or rocks. This has had a huge impact in terms of, uh, as I mentioned earlier, about this kind of development from Asian to Muslim uh, in the UK in how these communities were seen. And it was almost a perfect storm in terms of the development of a new strain of Islamophobia. And of course, Naj, you're absolutely right. Islamophobia goes far back, uh, much earlier than 9-11, you know, much earlier than the 1990s. You know, there's a long history of Islamophobia in the UK and in Western Europe and beyond. But I think that 2001 was such a seismic moment. And I think that these kind of twin events um, of not only the 9-11 attacks, but also the Northern uprisings uh, do really highlight how it's led to a number of policy developments, you know, which have been furthered uh, by the Conservatives, but also were championed initially by New Labour, um, which have really been used as a stick to beat Muslim communities with. Now, that's something that we, that we should really have a focus on in looking back over the last 20 years. Yeah, no, I think, you know, your experience of being in Oldham when that was happening, you know, it adds such a, you know, a layer of understanding. Because if I think back, as you know, as a soft southerner, as you'd call me, Wakas, you know, just <laughs> how my perception was through the media, you know, my sort of um, interpretation was kind of fed to me via the media. And, you know, the the role of the far right um, in, in those, in sort of fermenting those agitations was really not in the public domain. Um, it was all very much, uh, you know, just um, young brown men fighting with the police. Um, you know, famously, we had David Blunkett blaming, accusing people of not speaking English at home. And if they'd spoken English at home, then none of this would have happened. And I think that speaking English at home, you know, speaks to the whole kind of community cohesion, integration agenda. And, you know, that's obviously followed through into the so-called de-radicalization um, agenda as well. So I think, you know, again, in terms of um, creating uh, ideas about Muslims in the public imaginary, the, the way that those uprisings were represented um, sort of in mainstream media, again, had this sort of uh, you know, profound um, effect. And it was almost like the perfect, as you said, the perfect storm, but it was just the perfect foundation then on which to build the kind of more um, aggressive, state-sanctioned Islamophobia that kind of followed 2001. I wonder whether we can bring in like how all of these experiences kind of impacted on our kind of trajectories as, as, as academics. Yeah, um, so I think probably like quite fundamentally shaped my young adulthood and then yeah my kind of choice I mean I say choices I didn't really probably feel like I was making choices I think a lot of the time I felt like I was reacting to um to situations and definitely in terms of kind of being at university and doing a, a degree in politics and international relations at quite a conservative small c conservative institution you know that was entirely the cohort was entire almost entirely white the faculty was certainly all white very dominated by anglo-american analytic philosophy traditions <laughs> which were shall we say not particularly fit for purpose in making sense of making sense of the modern world i think for me yeah i don't think that i made conscious choices and i just kind of fell into i think doing research on things that i was really interested in and this was actually i remember the riots as they were described in in northern england and i remember doing i don't know i think i did some coursework on it when i was doing my gcses so i was always very political and interested in politics 
And yeah, I continued that at university. And I think it was only much later, really, I think I started in great engaging with all of this in a more critical fashion. And really, I think that only happened when I kind of encountered more systematically the literature on race and racism and specifically then British histories of race and racism. Because prior to that, my understanding, I think, despite my personal experiences of the war on terror were really, I had, I think I probably had quite a Eurocentric and a white perspective on these issues, which has been like used a kind of uh, fashionable language at the moment. Uh, I probably had quite a colonized perspective on it. And I think for me, actually, the last few years have been very much a kind of process of unpicking that and subjecting that um, that knowledge that I thought I had in a more critical way. I think for me, um, certainly in the 2000s, um, when I look back, I was political, um, but I think the issue was, is I didn't really have a coherent politics. So I would go to some demonstrations, some anti-war demonstrations. Um, I would go to anti-racism events. I would get involved in some of those things, but it wasn't really a coherent politics, um, I think. And I think, you know, this is something that is not unique to me. You know, lots of people, uh, particularly when they are young, they are developing their politics and they are figuring out where they belong and, you know, which spaces they feel comfortable in and which causes they want to dedicate their lives and time to. Um, but for me, um, I did certainly, um, at least on some level, um, you know, engage in campaigning work, etc., around anti-racism and anti-war activities. Um, I think that for me, um, I kind of ended up falling into academia by accident almost, but... Um, yeah, I was lucky enough to have some good lecturers, you know, who were engaged with race and class. Um, and I think it's then really where I began to see the world differently, you know, where I began to see the world, you know, through a, a lens of race and class, you know. And I think if you don't have those conceptual tools, then I think I think it's very easy to be apolitical, you know, where you don't understand or where you don't see the world, you know, through those different structural forces, you know, be it connected to class or be it connected to race or be it connected to patriarchy and gender um you know once you begin to see the world through those kind of you know quite basic i think conceptual lenses you know then things do begin to make sense and um i think that i was quite lucky and fortunate to have tutors who were able to do that at university and this is where i kind of first began learning about the concepts of race and racism i think i was particularly struck by the study of british muslims because of course you know coming from a British Muslim family and community, you know, this was my experience, this was my life, and I was certainly interested in researching it, you know, given the events of my own life, you know. Um, in terms of my own work, I think it's, uh, I think it's quite strange where through my degree, and I guess through my PhD as well, I had much more of a focus uh, on class in my work. And um, I think that that is partly because of training. And, you know, this is a conversation that I've actually had with others as well, where, you know, where scholars who work in the race field now didn't initially or originally have that as their background is something that they've picked up and developed and I think that for me you know this is very much dependent on who your supervisors are who your advisors are and for me during my PhD and I guess before then as well to some extent I was engaged with a number of different networks you know which were connected to race and which were connected to anti-racism and I also got involved in um in a lot of community grassroots work, particularly um, with being one of the co-founders and joint conveners of the Northern Police Monitoring Project. And I think that that really helped me to develop um, 
a racial politics, uh, you know, if that's a useful phrase to use. And uh, yeah, so it was almost kind of by accident, but certainly then over the past decade of, you know, I have developed a, a strong interest in racism and, and anti-racism, particularly in respect to policing uh, and particularly in respect to the experiences of British Muslim communities in the context of the war and terror and all the things that we're discussing here today. Yeah, I think actually it's really interesting um, to think about the disciplinary differences between us, because I think you're both kind of, uh, regards, I think you're kind of more criminology and Naja's more sociology, but international relations definitely as a discipline was not really, um, I think things are kind of changing now with there's much more challenge in within the discipline itself around unwillingness and inability to engage with imperial and colonial histories with issues of race and racism and I think that this was definitely reflected in my kind of you know throughout my kind of degrees and my education and I think that I ended up using you know actually I think part of the reason that the three of us met and have had a lot to say to each other in the last few years is because this is not really something I could find adequately within within my own discipline I mean forget conversations about class there were there used to be very few conversations about about race I think so I find that really, I think that's really revealing and that speaks a lot about, yeah, I guess, I mean, I call it my discipline. I don't really feel like it's my discipline. I've never felt like that. But international relations as a, as a discipline, which has a very particular white supremacist history. And, you know, we can kind of talk about that now. But for me, the, the kind of most compelling stuff around race and class and particularly that kind of mutually constitutive relationship between them was, you know, reading Robbie Shilliam's Race and the Undeserving Poor was real turning point because that helped me to understand the mutually constitutive relationship between those categories through the kind of histories of British British imperialism and this idea of the undeserving poor, which kind of opens up the ways in which different minoritized, racially marginalized communities um, in Britain um, have treated, right? So we're talking about Muslim populations, but obviously there's a very developed framework around black populations, you know, and the idea of the mugger and kind of there's a huge literature on that. So one of the things I guess I've become more interested in recently is this kind of relationship between Islamophobia as anti-Muslim racism, but also its relationship to other forms of racism, and including anti-black racism. And I think actually that is something we should already be talking about more and thinking about in a more systematic way. But yeah, I think it would have been really hard for me to do the work that I've been doing without, you know, being able to turn to turn to these other disciplines, really. And I think, Naj, this is a conversation we've we've had quite a lot in the past. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think what's also interesting is how, I mean, you say oh, sociology is some, somehow better at it than international relations. But I think there's also been, you know, an evolution within the dis- each discipline brought us to somewhere maybe a bit more useful in terms of understanding this so I mean my first degree was actually economics so I, like I, I was more sort of familiar with class race was maybe added in as you know something that was used to divide and rule kind of class consciousness and, and activism um, and it was only you know when I went back to university in 2005 uh, I went to Birkbeck to do a master's in what was called race and ethnic relations it was like I'd been having all these thoughts about trying to understand my experience of being a brown woman in Britain in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And it was as though I'd suddenly found the vocabulary to be able to articulate how I felt about so many different things. 
And obviously 2005 was the year of the London bombings, Hurricane Katrina happened, riots in Paris, you know, so there was lots of different things happening at that time when I sort of embarked on studying this. And I think the, the sophistication maybe of the material that I had access to in 2005 uh, was way beyond what I would have had access to when I was an undergrad in, in the early 90s. So, you know, I think in terms of where sociology was at um, then and where it's been going, you know, I think we're in a, in a much better place. But that bringing together constant kind of debate around race or class and actually why can't we think about them together, as you say, Nadia, you know, they're mutually constitutive of one another. But for me as well, you know, the issue of gender was a huge factor in, in what I wanted to explore. So what drew me to carrying on um, with academia um, in the late 2000s was the way this process of racialization, how Muslims um, were racialized and how that process was was gendered. Uh, I, you know, I really wanted to look at that. And in fact, my sort of master's dissertation was specifically looking at vocabulary around honor violence, uh, as opposed to what was described as so-called ordinary domestic violence. And so I was really interested in the way that, um, you know, these crimes were kind of presented uh, in mainstream media and policy as kind of cultural practices and then how this fed in to the racialization of Muslims and how that process was gendered and you know I think all of our work um, brings in gender and the way that the process of uh, racialization ha has been gendered. Yeah I think that probably most recently and large kind of we've done things around this uh, Shemaima Begum has become quite um central I guess or to the for me anyway um around those conversations and particularly I've become increasingly interested in what Gargi Bhattacharya calls this idea of disentitlement so the way that access to I guess like public goods the goods of citizenship um become are made conditional and so one of the ways that this happens is through these through these processes of kind of what you know we've called it um gendered Islamophobia the figure of the Muslim woman and particularly the visible Muslim woman has become so, I think Shamaima actually for me represents a, a, the real sharp edge of all those um, conversations and the ways in which that mixture of kind of voyeurism, you know, like what's she wearing, what's she up to, that disgust and revulsion around her, her person, the way that, you know, I just remember when when the three of them left left for Syria and I just remember these two articles in particular by white women Grace Dent and uh who I think is like um, a food critic <laughs> and Alison Pearson who obviously um has her own reputation at the at the Telegraph and I just remember reading their words and thinking wow this is this is super racist <laughs> um but the idea that it you know you could write it quite easily and quite happily and without very little fuss about Muslim women in this particular way in the public domain to me has just been one of the worst aspects of uh, of the entrenchment of Islamophobic violence. And I remember one of my sisters who is, um, who is a care worker and she just said that every time Shemaima's on the news, it's a real problem for her because she'll be in the homes of what she describes as kind of racist old white people. And this will be playing in the background and they will be asked, and my sister wears, she wears a jilbab and they basically, you know, what's this all about? Why are you wearing this? You know, she even had a woman who tried to remove her, who tried to remove her um, jilbab from her, telling her that she was oppressed and she shouldn't be wearing it. And I think there's something really interesting to me about, incredibly violent, but 
for my sister inhabiting these kind of quite intimate spaces of these people's homes that this thing is playing on the background that is kind of inescapable you can't go anywhere um you can't escape from it and particularly in those those kinds of contexts and i think increasingly i guess i'm interested in those uh the way those things play out in those kinds of settings uh rather than like we all understand the 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 sweep of those big structural arguments about state Islamophobia, um, about prevent and surveillance. But the, those kinds of experiences, particularly of Muslim women, are really interesting to me. And another thing I remember doing, like some interviews and women talking about doing the school run or doing the grocery shop with their children and being subjected to abuse and the presence of their children being like an aggravating factor. And I think that that's something which is also not really, because we often tend to focus on the visibility aspect like the hijab and stuff like that but i think there's something really interesting about gendered labor and then the exposure to gendered islamophobic violence um which yeah which we could all kind of do with talking about a bit more i guess i absolutely agree and uh, i think that the case of shimima begum highlighted you know i know that it's frequently in the media um over the past few years you know since the revelations uh, were first made uh, around how she traveled to Syria with some school friends. And I think that it's so instructive as to how embedded Islamophobia is in the UK. At some point in the coverage of Shamima Begum, I remember there was a report of a shooting club in the UK. I think it was somewhere in Merseyside where there was a shooting club where they were using Shamima Begum's face as a target. So there's this kind of deeply embedded hate uh, towards Muslim women, which of course was directed at Shimima Begum, but which I think says something much more broadly about how Islamophobia um, is only ever just beneath the surface in the UK, if not in its most explicit form, uh, it's only ever beneath the surface. And um, I think it doesn't take much for many people, you know, to find that Islamophobia within them, you know, which is unfortunate, but which I think is one of the hallmarks of 20 years of the war on terror and I know that we could have a discussion as many have um, you know about the role that Shimima Begum has played particularly for liberals you know who have found it really difficult to find any defense at all um, you know given that she was a child given that she was groomed um, but for many liberal commentators in particular um, they found it impossible you know to say any word you know for the fear of being seen as an apologist for terrorism or an apologist for anything else. And I think, um, you know, that there have been few but quite strong and persuasive voices who have been saying that Shimima Begum, you know, should face due process, uh, you know, that she was a victim, that she was groomed. Uh, and I think on that topic of grooming, it's also really important to kind of speak about Another area, um, you know, which has really kind of highlighted or placed British Muslims and British Pakistanis in particular um, at the centre of a lot of reporting in the UK over the past decade, which has been the racialization of the grooming gang scandals. Um, so again, I know that many listeners will be familiar with this, but it's uh, it's the reporting of how a number of very serious sexual abuse crimes that were committed. Uh, by groups of men and of course some of these cases are still being investigated and still being prosecuted today as we speak um, but it's the way in which 
these crimes have been depicted in the press, have been reported in the press, and it's about the backlash um, that they have had um, on British Muslims and I think on minority communities more generally. Um, so the idea here is, particularly from the right and the far right, um, is that there is something inherently uh, sexually sadistic about Muslim communities, inherently inherently misogynistic about Muslim communities, and that this is the reason why the crimes occurred, right? So there's this kind of desire to locate deviance within Muslim men as an inherent feature of their being, right? You know, which is linked to their culture, their upbringing, their background, but also their faith. You know, there have been many incidents, uh, you know, of what I would describe to be far-right media coverage of these cases, which I think um, has actually done absolutely nothing for the victims, for the survivors, um, or to prevent future violence against women, but it's done a lot in terms of worsening race relations, in terms of making Muslim communities, particularly in some of these places where these crimes have occurred, more vulnerable to racist attacks. It's a really controversial space for a lot of people, you know, for very obvious reasons. But then I also think that in the last couple of years that there has been a real sea change, given that we now have some evidence, you know, which I, which I have contributed to as an academic, along with other scholars, including Ella Cockbane, which has really shown how there's absolutely no evidence uh, that one ethnic group is overrepresented as an offending group in crimes of sexual abuse. That that doesn't mean that we don't make sure that we re that we redouble our efforts um, in terms of preventing sexual abuse uh, and child sexual abuse in particular. But yeah, I think it's been a real and significant issue in terms of how we've dealt with the racialization of those crimes. And I say we from the perspective of activists, from the perspective of anti-racist and leftist, because I think it has been a dilemma for many. And I'd be interested to see, uh, to listen to what you guys think about this as well. I think when I was listening to you speak, because I mean, you know, it goes back to what I was saying, how this idea of a cultural practice and how that you know, links back to a sort of longer legacy of Islamophobia or Orientalism, this kind of, um, you know, the obsession uh, with this voyeurism or this kind of attribution of these, um, you know, essentialized characteristics of other marginalized groups. Um, so I think that really comes through. But I, I guess I was slightly also struck by what you said about the way that the far right have used, you know, these issues as, you know, as a way to kind of get support you know i i think i've said elsewhere you know everyone is a feminist when it comes to muslim women and it's how you know these issues uh, whether it's around you know gender violence within muslim communities or also these kind of um media sensations around um child sexual exploitation you know um yes of course the far right use that but i i think what i'm interested in is how that seeps across the whole of the political spectrum you know, that actually, you know, the idea of liberal Islamophobia, um, how that is kind of um, supported or supports far right kind of ideas um, and anti-Muslim ideas. So I think that's something, you know, we talked about the role of new labor earlier, and I, I think that's something that's, um, you know, worth reflecting on. And also, you know, it, within the space of a university, like how do these ideas sort of circulate in the university and you know how that might have impacted or not our own kind of experiences yeah i think the 
this can't be stressed enough liberal racism um, because liberals have been I wouldn't because you said like they're afraid of being seen as terrorist apologists I, I would go much further than that that they have been absolutely key architects in this um, in constructing these Islamophobic uh, ideas and, and helping them circulate and I think child sexual exploitation has been one terrain um, honor-based violence has been another terrain and it's always it's what um, in the clamor of nationalism by Siva Mohan Valuvan what he talks about the idea of um, that the other is always is always has always got to do the learning basically that the assumption is the white communities always kind of already know everything like good ways to behave um, and that others need to be taught and that is not accepted that the key difference between liberals and conservatives historically has been that conservatives kind of um, you know, they think they're better than everyone else. They think they're superior and that's, you know, and the uh, communities can't improve themselves. Whereas for liberals, the idea of improvement um, of pedagogies is really important. Um, however, so a lot of the violence that they propagate, and we can see this around justifications for the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, which obviously has, uh, has really come home to roost recently, has been on the basis that we're improving gender relations or improving conditions of living for for people who need who need saving so yeah in this sense Naj I think you're completely right um about when it comes to Muslim women everyone everyone is a feminist and I think the stuff about child sexual exploitation makes me particularly angry because you can see in all of those cases that abs the abject failure of the police the abject failure of social services of local authorities and then they basically have this out, which is, well, we felt we couldn't say anything because we didn't want to look like we were racist. And it's just, um, you know, it's just patently untrue because, because actually we can see that in the UK, we have these kind of patriarchal cultures of um, violence against women, um, all women and girls that is just not taken, is just not taken seriously. Um, but when we have this kind of racial element to it then it becomes mobilized in these different ways and the far right does it but also liberals do it and I think that liberals and center-left uh, commentators have a lot to answer for really. I think in terms of academia and being an academic and working on prevent it, you can also see it here. I think the thing that makes me really I've been thinking about it a lot in the last couple of years has been for us I guess all all of us in different ways because of our backgrounds and um, where we've come from there's always risk attached to the work we do and I think we've all paid different kinds of prices for the work that we've done like particularly you Vagas on the stuff around child sexual exploitation but yeah talking about race racism and gender it, it you know it brings it brings certain um a certain kind of scrutiny I think and I guess increasingly I feel like for many white scholars it's they don't they don't have to take any of the same risks and particularly the ones who kind of postures critical in different ways um but then also end up taking for example government funding you know there's a case um that kind of came to light a few months ago of a scholar who has describes himself as a critical terrorism study scholar but also then has been taking funding from gchq and to me it's really interesting how then you can move from so-called critical spaces to these spaces of government which is so fully tied up in and embedded with this state-led project of Islamophobia without any kind of consequences uh, and, and actually the main consequence is the advancement of your career and that's the primary like the primary thing that you get out of working on marginalized communities and I find this I think like I think we can think about this in terms of the wages of whiteness actually and that's something I feel as um, kind of disciplines sub-disciplines fields of research 
we should be talking about a bit more because some of us have a kind of risks we take and prices we pay and other people simply don't have that it you know it's just a way of advancing your career and i find this um i find this really troubling i think i absolutely agree um that being an academic in this space if you're researching prevent if you're researching issues of cse it is a really toxic environment and it really opens you up to attack yeah and yeah um, i have certainly faced my fair share of attacks particularly i think on the cse stuff um, and the CAC research that I've been carrying out um, and I've been carrying out this research now for over a decade I have done work on prevent you know I have published on prevent I have engaged with um, a number of other scholars too on the work on prevent but it's the work on CAC that has really um, led to me being attacked I can recall a number of threats that I've faced um, including death threats um, once, um, I'm not sure if you two know this actually, um, I may have mentioned it in the past, but I was in Australia a couple of years ago and actually just a couple of weeks after the Christchurch terror attacks, you know, um, and hopefully we can come back to the role of the far right later in, um, in this conversation. Uh, but I was at an event where I was giving a lecture uh, on some of my research on the racialization of CSE. Um, and there were two members of a far right group in attendance and they, and they made themselves known. They sat at the back whilst I was talking and then at the end they decided to heckle me and the, and the, they made themselves known, you know, who they were and what their views were. You know, I think it's important to bear in mind that for some people and for some communities and for, and for some academics more than others, you know, uh, critique and criticism uh, are one thing, you know, but then actually facing threats and, you know, facing people in person, you know, who don't like you, you know, who make it very clear who they are and, and that they're from a far right background. That is something completely different and separate. And um, yeah, so, um, you know, it has been a real challenge and, you know, because I'm Muslim, because I'm from a Pakistani background, there's been this kind of notion that I'm more open to critique or to racism or to death threats, you know, because I'm researching this topic of CSE and not because I'm a criminologist and because I'm a sociologist of race. It's interesting how it's only ever people of colour or Muslim academics who kind of get judged um, on what they research because of their background, right? On the other hand, people of colour pigeonholed as well, you know, into researching particular things, right? You know, where, you know, you must only be interested in researching race, you know, you, you mustn't be interested in, in researching anything else, right? So there's this kind of idea that your research has to be connected to your identity, right? You know, which again, white academics, you know, will never face these questions or this kind of hostility. And that isn't to say, just for the record, uh, you know, that white academics don't face abuse. And I would certainly say that my research collaborator, Ella Cockburn, also, you know, um, as she has publicly declared, you know, faced a lot of backlash for her research on CSC as well, you know, and particularly given uh, her findings uh, on this subject. So, yeah, um, I think it's absolutely, um, I think it's a different world if you're, a brown academic, if you're a Muslim academic, and if you're researching topics like prevent and CSE, and I think it really does open you up to a number of attacks. And I think that you do really need to have um, a good level of support around you, like you two, for instance, you know, um, in order to kind of, you know, share your experiences, have each other's back. Um, and I think that's really important. So, you know, just some advice for any other academics of colour, just make sure that you surround yourself with a good support network, um, you know, because it will come in handy. And then also you will come in handy. Your experiences, your advice will come in handy for someone else as well.
Cheers for that, Wakas. I think that's, that's a massively important point. Coming back into academia at the sort of time of, you know, uh, extreme marketization and doing the work that we do, which is kind of, you know, in that awful terminology, you know, it's a sexy topic, but we are doing, we are taking a critical approach. So we are not the academics who are going to have money thrown at us by the Home Office or GCHQ or whatever. And I certainly don't want that. But I, I mean, it's it's very, very I would say difficult doing this the type of work that we do in the environment that, that we do it in. Well, Carl, you mentioned like I, I don't know whether we will get a chance to sort of discuss the sort of issue of the far right specifically, but one thing I did want to say as this kind of academic and policy interest in radicalization, extremism has kind of you know been um expanded in the last sort of 10 years. I, you know, it kind of you know, there's something that I'm worried about that, you know, in the sense that, you know, it's basically, you know, advocating for the extension of kind of state involvement and state surveillance, you know, so rather than learning that actually prevent doesn't work, and it actually ends up just sort of demonizing and marginalizing particular people, there does seem to be this push to, um, you know, actually expand the sort of role of securitization in, in, in our society. So as we wrap up, I want maybe for us to think about, you know, where do we go? You know, we have, it's been 20 years since 9-11. Where do we go from here? Yeah, so um, I think that's the huge question, isn't it? Um, we should focus on some of the positives as well, um, in the sense that there has been some successful organizing over the past 20 years um, on a number of different areas, you know, where we've seen how there's been pushback at certain times where we've seen the ability for communities to organize. I think that we do need to address how fractured some of the solidarities can be. And I know that there's been quite a lot of us been written about this, about how anti-racist solidarity has kind of collapsed into different enclaves, you know, for a number of quite complex reasons um, over the last 20 or 30 years. But I think that we do need to try and develop some of those strategies and I think the Black Lives Matter movement really has given everyone an impetus um, over the past you know four or five six seven years but particularly in the past couple of years for obvious reasons um, in terms of organizing again so I think that we need to really focus um, on our ability to organize uh, to campaign to also particularly in the current times you know where we have a conservative party but then we also have a conservative light party in opposition uh, you know, where we have to recognize that we can't look above uh, for help, that we have to help ourselves, that we have to kind of help our communities. And I think that any change that is going to come is going to come at the grassroots. And I think just one thing that I want to add, and I think it's just one sentence really, which is just to really highlight how the war on terror over the past 20 years in both its global and local form has really emboldened the far right. You know, we can't ignore that. We've had a number of far-right attacks from Christchurch, from Anders Breivik, to a number of far-right attacks in the UK. And um, I think that we have to absolutely understand that these are connected to the climate of the war on terror. You know, these are absolutely connected to an encroaching and increasing anti-Muslim political climate. I think that we have to centre that in our organising. We have to centre community protection and we have to centre campaigning and organising against those policies and those programmes that are targeting our communities. If that's Prevent or if that's any other initiative or policy programme, then we have to absolutely make sure that we organise together in terms of resisting it. And I think that we can look back at some of the successes over the past 20 years in order to do so. 
Yeah, I think it uh, can't be emphasised enough how um, pivotal I think the Black Lives Matter, the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in the last um, 18 months has been. Broader conversations around race, racism, empire, um, belonging and all these kinds of things. It's, I think in my teaching, I can definitely see the difference that it's made in the sense that it's made certain things easier. It's made it easier uh, for me anyway. I don't know what your experiences are to talk about white supremacy and whiteness. Um, and I think that's that's really important. I also think thinking about kind of the like good stuff um, that the kids are all right. So I think actually for our generation, um, we, I think I've said this before, we didn't really know what was coming for us. Whereas I think the younger generations have a pretty good idea and they've grown up in particular kinds of ways. Um, and I think you can kind of see greater levels of education political education, awareness, and confidence, actually, to talk about these things. I can see it, you know, in my own family in different ways. Um, and I think that that's, yeah, that's really important. I think the biggest difference that kind of, I guess you can make through research and teaching is at this, like, grassroots level. So the, the research, anyway, for me, anyway, like, always has to be connected to speaking to and a part of um, organizing in these particular ways and never just a kind of um, an exercise in itself really. So I, I, I agree I think you know um, sort of the levels of knowledge and education have kind of uh, you know a literacy a sort of racial literacy has, uh, has improved um, and going back to something you said earlier Wakas you know that you know sort of connecting up the, you know, a sort of coherent sort of political stance I think we're potentially a lot closer to having a coherent kind of thinking around race and class and gender um, in, in the mainstream. But I think also, you know, it's important to build solidarities through that, you know, and actually making those connections across different forms of racism, you know, that exist in contemporary society, but also making those links to previous racisms, right? So I think that kind of knowledge need, needs to get out there and making sort of links you know if we think about the war on terror yes it's about prevent yes it's about um it's focused on islam islamic extremism or whatever the terminologies that they use but also thinking about how you know the pre-crime space is used in in lots of other ways if you think about the troubled family scheme you look at the way that um certain forms of music like grime are are, are policed you know we can make those connections and those connections take on meaning when we bring in the connections between all forms of uh racism and their kind of historical historical roots so i think yeah i mean i i think there's still a, a long way to go i think we're probably in a better place than we were 20 years ago um but i think that you know the idea of education and as you say nadia grassroots education you know not just doing it you know in, in sort of through our research in, in journals that people won't have access to um i think that's really important getting those ideas out there showing the sort of continuities as a way of of, of building solidarity i just want to highlight and i think um that it's really important to do so that we have reached the 20-year anniversary of, of 9-11, but we've also reached the 20-year point at which the war seems to have officially come to end in Afghanistan. And I think to call it a war is, you know, it's quite a strange phrase, you know, it was a military invasion and occupation. And I read just this week um, of 
an Afghan family, including six children, who were killed by a US drone strike. This was kind of a very tragic kind of metaphor, really, you know, for how this invasion and occupation began. You know, it started with a massacre of Afghan families, and that's how it's also ended. And one thing that we haven't really discussed too much, um, I guess, in explicit terms, although we have indirectly, is trauma, you know, and how this trauma of the war and terror, you know, this trauma at the global level, particularly in countries like Afghanistan and Iraq, which have been, you know, which have been destroyed in many senses uh, by Western imperialism and in particular US imperialism, but then also the trauma of the kind of blowback uh, of the policies like prevent of the local war and terror apparatus, be that community surveillance um, or be that through de-radicalization programs or be that through the normalization of some of the issues that we've discussed in the course of this conversation today. So I think that one of the ways in in which we can really try and think forward to the next 10 or 20 years really is about how we kind of deal with that trauma because I think in many senses it's ongoing and I think that's going to be a real key challenge but as you both have highlighted I think quite correctly I think that younger people today are much better equipped um, they seem to be much better politicized given the Black Lives Matter movement given the rise of social media and you know how social media clearly has its uses from a particular from a a political standpoint and uh, but yeah i think that trying to kind of deal with that trauma is going to be a long-term goal and a long-term challenge yeah i just saw a headline in the guardian yesterday about how what the west is going to do about terrorist attacks that might be planned in afghanistan and i just wanted to scream because this this is that was the entire rationale for what they did 20 years ago and yet they are right back where they started having accumulated all of this kind of 20 years worth of kind of violence directed at um, directed at people who are not in a largely not in a position to resist and I, and all these conversations again around the Taliban and women and children and I think at, at that kind of more f- political formal institutional political level uh, but also I think some of the wider public understanding it's so poor to me it beggars belief that you can just have the same conversations over and over again which is a kind of i guess a, a bit more of a uh, a sobering note like to finish on i guess this has been a really great conversation and i i know we could continue it for longer there's lots of things we haven't managed to cover i wanted to talk about as well but i think i think we're ending on as you say a, a sobering note nadia uh, given where we are at with the situation in Afghanistan now, but equally, maybe as we've all uh, agreed, you know, in terms of uh, activism and you know what we should be focusing on going forward, I think maybe we 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 are we have we are in a better position to do that. So uh, yeah, thank you, Wakas, Nadia, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.